Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 19. So I know this is predominantly a coffee podcast with an undercurrent of winemaking, but today is the day where I come out of the tea closet. I love tea. I love trying new teas. I love learning about tea history. I love collecting different teapots and ceramics. I just, oh, huge, huge fan. But I think coffee and tea are often lumped together in like a similar category. I think they hold a similar space in most people's um, psyche. But I think they have very different histories, and I think it's worth trying to decouple these beverages. However, I am just an amateur super fan and nowhere near qualified to begin to untangle tea from coffee. But luckily, I know someone who is, my friend Aurora Pren. So Aurora is a researcher of people and plants. Her undergraduate work was a double major in anthropology and environmental studies. She worked at Rishi Tea and Botanicals as a tea educator. In 2018, she left to do a master's in ethnobotany in Canterbury, England, which she finished last fall. And this was the first time that I heard this fantastic term, ethnobotany, the study of people and plants. As part of her master's, she spent time living in Georgia, the country, not the state, studying that culture's relationship to wine, and this is because Georgia is the birthplace of wine. In December, she started a research project at the Royal Botanical Gardens Kew in London until the pandemic hit, and now she's back in Seattle where I was able to catch up with her for today's episode. I was already head over heels for tea when I met her, but through our friendship, she's guided me to trying teas I would not have had access to otherwise. Because specialty tea can be a bit intimidating, at least it was for me when I first started, and having a friend like Aurora that I could consult and who was eager to share her knowledge made tea a lot more approachable and let me go off the deep end even further. If some parts of this conversation feel abrupt, it's because we talked for almost three hours and I had to edit quite a bit to get it to its present form. Today's episode is meant as an introduction if you're new to specialty tea, and one of the goals is to offer some clarifying language, and as Aurora says, to become botanically aware. Often, when people learn about what I do for a living, they find it cool and say things like, oh, I want your job. And it's true, I have a really great job that I love. But when I met Aurora, I suddenly felt a rise of envy. It was the first time I could honestly say, no, I want that job. So this was 2017 in Seattle. It was during the RICO portion of the Specialty Coffee Association Conference, and she was working as a tea educator for Rishi. I was attending RICO as a speaker and therefore had almost zero time to participate in any of the events, but I saw that Rishi had a sensory experience and I made it a priority to clear some time and visit their booth. She was surrounded by all of these exceptional teas, things that I had never tasted before, and it was all of these like really interesting epic flights. Anyway, let's get into today's conversation. We are jumping in when Aurora is describing what she was doing when I met her. My job in the booth was to lead different tea and botanical cuppings organized by flights. So I remember I had like a lemon flight of just different plants that you know, gave a lemon note. And I really kind of had people question um, different flavor notes when you just see lemon on a label, you just see tea on a label. Well, what exactly is that? Is it lemon myrtle? You know, is it lemon verbena? And what does tea taste like? 
um, I see that on coffee bags and I'm just like, well, that's really vague. That's as vague as you can be. <laughs> is it a green tea? Is it a black tea? Is it floral? Is it fruity? I mean, you know, so really always question what they actually mean by that. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that that's like a really um, common descriptor in coffee to say, oh, this is a tea-like uh, flavor. And yet tea has a whole world of flavor and sort of similar, like in our world, like we know that from coffee because there's so many different flavors and varieties of coffee. And then you'll see something else saying like, oh, this tastes like coffee. And exactly what you're saying. It's like, well, what coffee? <laughs> like there's, there's an entire world like within that. And we're just using this like really super surface level. And we think we're getting, you know, very descriptive. What I want to talk about also, or what I, I want to start with is like, why should coffee people care about tea? Like, why was it important for Rishi to be part of the the coffee conference? And like, where does tea fit into our coffee drinking culture? I really just think that tea and coffee are like a brother and sister in adolescent age. They're in this love-hate relationship. Tea is maybe like the younger sibling that wants to like hang onto the coattails and the older siblings like, no, get away you know, go do your own thing. And, you know, but it's better together. And, um, mm -hmm. and uh, I think having, I, well, so for so long, they've kind of been co-evolving through like the specialty coffee movement, um, you know, really kind of emerging um, significantly in the 1980s and 1990s and tea has kind of followed suit, but tea's kind of had this delayed um, renaissance a little bit is really kind of coming to in the last 10-15 years and so I think I don't see them diverging anytime soon and I think it's wise and I think it's actually a must that um, uh, coffee shops and cafes have a tea lineup it offers just really more variety quality is only getting better yeah and I think just to clarify that Tea has a much longer history than coffee, um, thousands of years in terms of other cultures that drink it. But specialty tea in particular, I think, is what you're saying is kind of dragging behind the specialty coffee movement. It's not as developed. It's not as, or would you say the opposite? I, I would just say it's behind because we just don't have that many drinkers, you know, as much as coffee. We are dominant in coffee in America as well as many countries um, around the world, um, but we have so many traditions here, and so it's like we really do have a melting pot of beverage traditions in America. So it's not that behind is mean, meaning like it's just uh, and it's not as developed. Yeah, it's, it's it's not as developed because we don't have um, like the volume of drinkers in America, but it doesn't mean we don't have people that are passionate about tea in America. Um, and our tea drinking culture is different than, um, and even within America, traveling regionally and training people across the country, there are so many different tea drinking cultures within America, but just looking on a national level, our culture is different than Britain's. It's different than France's. So, you know, you have to, you just have to kind of meet it, meet it where it's at. The word tea as this giant umbrella. And I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about the traditional view of tea and then sort of how it's used more broadly. Okay. Um, well, tea refers to Camellia sinensis. This is maybe, there's kind of two camps maybe, and there's of course an overlap um, and an understanding of bringing them together. But a traditionalist mindset would say that tea is Camellia sinensis. Um, where there's multiple varieties and, multi and many more cultivars. 
it's caffeinated, it's the tradition is tea. And then maybe more of a modernist is bringing in more botanicals into the equation. And they're saying, you know, anything you steep in hot water will be tea, right? By definition. But if you look at common use of the word, we say tea to mean anything we steep in hot water. Chamomile tea, mint tea, lavender tea. Um, some people would say that it's more, it would be better to call them infusions, chamomile infusions, dandelion infusions. We love to shorten everything in America, and tea is easier to say and a shorter word, right? So it just leads to some confusion. And I think the trend is more trying to be, um, to grow the industry as being a little bit um, inclusive. Well, I think it's really interesting that you said is I hadn't really considered that tea is both like a process, like something that you do to a botanical, like you turn it into a tea, you steep it in hot water and you make an extraction or an infusion. So it's like a process or it's a description of a step. And it's also anything that comes from the Camellia sinensis plant, sort of like we think of coffee as coming from Arabica or Robusta. Um, I think there's mm -hmm. some like coffees that, that I'm saying in quotation marks that are um, made from roasting like husks or other grains that can sort of be mixed in and they call that like a coffee and so I think that the, there's a little bit of a parallel there and and like you said it, it, it's not we're not trying to make these distinctions necessarily to tell anybody that they're wrong um, but it's just sort of to have a stronger foundation so that you know what you're talking about and so for some people when you say tea they really are only thinking about like the, the traditional, the classical sense of coming from this one, everything that comes from this one plant. And then for other people, tea is anything that you can put in water. And then just saying like, we can continue to use this word, but let's mm -hmm. maybe take a minute and say, okay, which one are you talking about? Yeah, it's just, it's just clarifying language. I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to say that any one word or use is particularly wrong. It's just, um, I think we both agree as we like, educated consumers and just to be more botanically aware um, and something we I was trying to think about how to talk about today is the whole um, trend of mushroom coffees that are coming online and you know and chick roasted chicory root which was a coffee substitute in wartime era America um, as being a coffee and roasted dandelion root as being a coffee um, and the same conversation we have about other botanicals being teas, we're having, you know, there are some botanicals out there that are being coffees as well. Do you see that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you brought up mushrooms too, because I mean, I think for me, what was most, was really interesting in this conversation was to, I love what you said, being botanically aware and not necessarily to put things into category to make other people wrong, but to have more information and to know that there are other options because it's such a growing category. And I think that, at least for me, what's really interesting is the diversity of, well, culture and the d diversity of the history and then also this, like, rainbow of flavor that it's not just one thing. Like, thinking of maybe, like, the Lipton's black tea is like, oh, that's, that's what tea is or even necessarily a green tea. So let's talk about what tea is, how a... Uh, sorry, how a tea enthusiast or how a traditionalist would define it. What are they talking about when they say tea? They are referring to tea leaves that come from the Camellia sinensis plant, either from one of two main varieties and numerous different cultivars. Uh, the other uh, camp, I guess I would say, or people who are non-traditionalists um, would include different botanicals, not Camellia sinensis, into the definition. But commonly in, in 
use in America, people would call just about anything tea. Chamomile tea, mint tea, maybe more appropriately they should be called infusions, um, but that's generally not the case. Um, and funny enough, even when a plant is steeped or brewed fresh in hot water, I've, I've kind of seen a trend where it would be called an infusion to kind of break it away. Like if you go and you order a pot of um, fresh mint leaf tea, um, they might call it an infusion on the menu. There's some, some kind of gray area. And the trend that I'm seeing is that there's more inclusion um, as the industry kind of grows to bring in botanicals into um, the definition of tea. And I think there's definitely some camps people think that we should and people think that we shouldn't. Um, but I'm all for inclusion. It just, the consumer needs to be aware of what they're drinking. You mentioned this, um, and I had not considered that there are some people who are looking for infusions or maybe strictly tea alternatives because they are looking for a caffeine-free option. And we had sort of assumed that if it's tea, if it's you know a green tea, a black tea, that, that oolong, that there's going to be caffeine, and so anything that's not that would be safe. So like uh, the common examples are chamomile um, or maybe a mint. But what you were telling me is that there are so many other categories in botanicals that do have caffeine that that's not even a good enough definition. And so just if somebody is trying to stay away from that, being aware. So what are some of those examples that are kind of difficult to categorize or that are maybe more crossovers? Uh, the list of the botanicals used in the industry um, seems infinite and it'd be a little bit easier to talk about the ones that are the exception uh, to the rule of non Camellia sinensis botanicals that do have caffeine, right? And so some of those can be three different hollies that are native to the Western Hemisphere. Yalpan, which is making its way onto the scene native to the South North America, like the southern parts of um, the United States. Guayusa, which is native to more of like the northern parts of South America. And then Mate, which is not matcha, native to like the southern of South America, which is now um, popular worldwide. Um, other ones would be uh, col the cola nut, native to Western Africa, that is not related to Gotu Cola. <laughs> <laughs> is it so? Is it accurate that chai is just the vocabulary? It's just the word for tea, and then we've turned it to mean a particular kind of tea. Yeah, including all of these spices. So, is it redundant to say chai tea? Um, exactly. It is redundant to say chai tea. It's a great example. We use the word tea to refer to Camellia sinensis in English, um, but and we also use the word chai. But in reference, we're, uh, that's always in reference to a black tea with spices that is consumed in India. So when we go into a shop in America, we'll say a chai tea, and that is 100% redundant. We're saying tea tea. We should be saying masala tea or masala chai, which would be spice tea, because that's what's in that's what it is in reference to. Um, is something as a drink that is spicy, hot or cold, um, with traditionally black tea and sugar, black tea spices, and with or without milk or sugar, depending on what your resources are. Maybe we should move on to talking about processes. Well, first, my my first realization was, oh, this is all of the same plant. Like I really thought that. Um, black tea and white tea or a green tea were coming from different plants. Like I thought that's what was the differentiator. And then when I realized, okay, no, they're all the same plant, then it was the process that gives them the characteristics and the flavor. So can you talk us through those? 
She has a lot of nuance and there is a lot to learn. And um, any enthusiast would say that tea is a lifelong journey if you let it be. Um, but that being said, you don't need to know a lot to be a tea drinker. And I've definitely seen and heard a lot of hesitance, um, hesitation um, from people I've taught over the years that uh, I, don't, I, I, I don't know how to, I don't, just don't even know where to begin. I don't know how to start. Um, really, you just need to put the kettle on to start um, because as we'll get into it, there is a lot of nuance, but I just want to say, don't be scared <laughs> by the nuance, but it is something to embrace. And it really is the process that really creates these buckets or categories of different teas. It's true that um, they all come from the same plant. For a long time in the West, um, we thought that green and black teas came from uh, different plants until seeds and plants were um, brought and grown and process was more understood did we realize it all came from one. Most people would agree that there are six categories. They may not agree of the exact order. Sometimes people will flip um, yellow or white tea around. Um, and this is our understanding in the West. I'm not going to say that this is how um, Chinese people or Japanese people would classify um, tea. I'll just put that out there. But to run through them, there's green, yellow, white, oolong or oolong, uh, black, and dark. Okay, so the process is really going to kind of dictate these categories. And on a scale, and that order that goes on um, degrees of oxidation. So if you laid this out on a chart, just from left to right, you'd have green to dark um, based on oxidation to kind of simplify it, right? Green teas are green because you apply heat right away, which is called the kill green step. Uh, in translation, it's the kill green step. You, add, you apply heat to kill the enzyme that oxidizes the leaf. So you want to keep it green, right? And then you have yellow. It's a very um, small category. It's the smallest. It's hard to get your hands on a yellow tea. Um, if you consider yourself lucky if you find yellow, yellow leaves in America. That's a step where there's heat applied and it's kind of smothered to kind of give it its own taste. White is really just left to wither for a very long period of time. Oolong is a semi-oxidized leaf. It can go from looking like a green to looking like a black um, and everything in between. Black, uh, black tea is uh, fully oxidized leaves. And then dark teas um, are post-fermented teas where they are very dark. So the category names you can kind of tell um, have gotten their names from the degree of oxidation. So green leaves are green, yellow leaves are a little bit yellow and their infusion has a nice yellow color. White teas are white because the trichomes underneath the leaf, when they dry and curl up, they give the leaves a little white appearance, um, which is very pleasant and that those trichomes and those hairs on the leaf actually really contribute to the mouthfeel and everything else. Oolong or Wulong, um, there's different spellings there. I think when we first saw it, maybe it was spelled W-U-L-O-N-G, but today yeah. well, industry standard to kind of say O-O-L-O-N-G. Well, Wulong translates to black dragon. It's a very romantic category um, that uh, all of them require a lot of skill, but some Wulongs take have many, many steps to make. And some people nickname it the connoisseur's tea. If you, if you really meet a tea drinker, 
odds are they'll probably say some oolongs are their favorites because they're so complex. Uh, black tea, what we think of as black tea, this is interesting that not everyone knows. What we call black tea in China, they call it hongcha, which is red tea. We call it black tea because as the West was importing leaves, they're like, oh, we want the black ones, not the green ones. But in China, they brew the tea and they call it red for the infusion color. It makes a very nice um, coppery red, orange red uh, color, that kind of side of the spectrum. And then what we call dark tea, they call heisha, which is black tea. So <laughs> let's just like add to the layers of confusion of why people <laughs> have some hesitation. Um, and that is intentionally or non-intentionally um, fermented. And some people just say this category is poor, and that's not so much the case. Um, their poor is definitely the most predominant dark tea that we see in America. And there, we can talk about that one more later, but there's two main kinds. Um, and we really see one of those two main kinds, a shu poir or shou poir, S-H-U or S-H-O-U poor that's very dark leaves. And you can tell the difference from a black and a, and a shoe pour um, if you spend enough time with both of them. So, and my understanding of the difference between those two is one is the, um, I guess, normal time of aging, and then the other one is a accelerated aging. Yeah, you can say that. There's one shengpuar, S-H-E-N-G, shengpuar, um, which you can say is the... Um, the slower aging or one that isn't intentionally inoculated with microbes. There's shengpuar and, there, and there's shupuar. So the first one, the shengpuar, both are made with um, a rough sun-dried green tea, right? Um, and it is geographically indicated. So today you'll say a puar is will come from Yunnan province in China and primarily in the southern part of Yunnan province. Um, and some of the most expensive are coming from Shishuanbana, which is the very southern part of Yunnan. So those leaves need to be grown and sun-dried there. And then they, there's many steps. I'm kind of speeding along. But then they will be um, steamed and pressed into different cakes. And once it's pressed into the cake, be it shengpuar, that added step makes it shengpuar. And those cakes, depending on how you age them, can age for decades. And they age just like fine wine, right? Shu poirs um, have the same steps in the beginning, but they're heaped into a pile. So a lot of times it looks like a big, it does look like a compost pile because it's a huge pile full of leaves. And this is where the secret sauce comes in, where, where makers will use um, different starters, different microbe starters to inoculate um, the piles. And then they'll turn them and make sure the temperature it's just like any other ferment. They'll watch the temperature, they'll make, watch the moisture content, and then they'll turn those piles regu regularly and it'll be made in um, a few weeks. That style of tea was meant to simulate an aged shengpuar. And it's not the same, um, but it made a very good type of, of, of newer tea. And this really kind of came out in the late 20th century. And there aren't these just these two processes. You have to imagine that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of nuance within this one category. But today you can see a sheng, you can see a shu, and the sheng when it entered the market became you people have been using the words 
raw or green, or uncooked pour, and the other one just the opposite, cooked, ripe, dark, you know, in the categories to kind of distinguish the two. Um, so they kind of have- Were they using the word cook as their word for fermentation as like it went through this changing process? Yeah, and some of the early um, writings, and if you look at some like T's descriptions and websites now, to try to describe it, people were saying, people, I've seen that written before. It wasn't common, but to kind of put them up side by side, they just use these opposing terms in English, which aren't always correct, yes. So it, this, so the poor, a shoe pour that you'll see in the market is post-fermented. What's the price difference between those two? Oh, very high, very high. To find a, a Shang Puar on the American market, you're, you're finding it from somebody who knows how special and valuable they are. It's very hard. You're going to find it from a, um, a small outlet or importer in North America that um, you know, is getting them, direct, of course, direct from China. And... Um, they're available on the market for people who know that they exist and, and are willing to pay the price for them, right? And then um, shoe pours are more common that you can, you can start finding them in tea bags now in the market. So it's just it, now they have two totally different audiences. Okay, so you're not going to accidentally stumble upon a shang somewhere. You're going to have to be looking for it. You have to hunt for it. And you're lucky if you find um, a, a great one that you uh, like and enjoy. So even I had, like, I still had the black, red, and then dark, black, like, those two categories, like, a little bit muddled. Like, for me, they were just, like, all one. But now that I can sp separate them out a little bit, um, if I'm thinking about uh, Lapsang, Lapsang Suchang, is that, that's a black tea. That is a Or red tea. Yes, that is a black tea or red tea that has been intentionally smoked. Yeah, so it, it is the campfire tea. Uh, nickname that. I've heard that. Uh, it actually has a very like a good following in the UK, which I was surprised to see um, because we just we don't really have that following here. Um, but it is a very robust, earthy one in that sense. Yeah. Would it be fair to say I could reserve the word dark, like that descriptor? Um, or that category for things that are, like we talked about, intentionally fermented. Whereas, like, the Lapsang isn't intentionally fermented, that's just more of a drying process, then that wouldn't be in that category. Um, no, that's a black tea. Categorically, that would be black. Yeah. I mean, okay. there are plenty of blacks where things are added to it. There are things, there's an, another step that makes... So within these six categories, there are numerous tea types. Once you start kind of narrowing down there are some tea types that require certain cultivars that need to be made in a certain place they need to have an added step to it like the smoking but if you kind of go back to the root of like what bucket does it fall in that tea would be a black of course there's gray areas and there's teas that overlap but there's no classification system that is perfect something that I have noticed a lot is so we're kind of fast and loose with the terms, even where we're just talking about like the word tea itself or using like cooked or uncooked, like we're just kind of throwing these words at it. And one of those words, which is obviously really relevant to my work, is the word fermentation. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that teas were fermented 
in the way that I think about fermentation. I know that people use that word to describe the teas, but I was always thinking of that fermentation as more of an oxidation as like, yes, it's a biological process like there is or chemical process and a biological process. But I think of, for me, I define fermentation as adding microbes and having a, a microbial um, metabolism to create certain flavors. And so a lot of the times that's not what's going on in tea. It's an oxidation, it's enzyme reactions, it's something else. But you shared with me this goishicha. I don't know if you can see it in the... Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Oh, I, I wish I had some of that right now. Goishicha. This goishicha. Thank you. It's a dark tea. And this really is... I'm just going to read the notes because I had not encountered anything like this. Um, it's a type of old-style bancha fermentation by way of ancient techniques. The flavor profile is alluring in its acidity with notes of tart cherry, apple cider vinegar. Is it umeboshi pickle? They pickled Burmese tea leaf salad. So the tea leaves are harvested, steamed, and pressed to express the juice, then piled and covered for the first fermentation stage. Then the tea is packed into vats and res the reserved tea leaf juice is added. A large heavy stone seals the vat and the tea ferments for about two weeks. Uh, this tea is finely cut and sun-dried to yield small square wafers of fermented tea leaf. So this is the one case that I've seen where that fits my my model of fermentation, where there's the liquid, where there's microbes, where there is time in a tank that is isolated. This is not um, strictly an oxidation or an enzyme reaction. Yeah, correct. But I think that word gets tossed a lot. And saying like, oh, teas are fermented. And we're just kind of assuming that a lot more of them are. But this is like a very specific, very small percentage, right? Yeah. So that goji cha belongs in the dark tea category along with um, uh, some boars, the shoe boars that we were talking about, um, where there is microbial activity on top of oxidized tea leaves some of the time. Cool. So let's, so. So let's go back to that, like, Let's talk a little bit more about the oxidation versus the fermentation. You really picked up on it. The words are used interchangeably in the tea industry. And again, there's camps of thought. So you see this overlap of people using oxidation and fermentation to describe the six categories that we just went through. Um, but I think a uh, majority of people will still call that oxidation today those categories. And as we just discussed, where there's microbes added intentionally or unintentionally to make a tea type being fermentation. So we can say only the last, out of those six categories, only one of those, last one, the dark one, the other ones, the green, the yellow, the white, the oolong, black, those do not have a fermentation the way I would define it in terms of microbial action. I think you can say that. Um, of course, there's gonna be exceptions. Yeah, there's going to be, there's just always going to be nuance and exceptions, but I would say this, I would agree with what you said, yes. What's interesting to me about tea is that it requires human intervention to create something that tastes good. For example, coffee, uh, the coffee cherries can grow, an animal can come and eat it, digest it, and then you can just pick up the seeds and roast the seeds. Like humans aren't really necessary for the process, except for the final step of being able to roast it and then get it into our cups. But the processing, the post-harvest processing could have zero to do with us, and we would still get a seed that we could turn into a coffee <laughs> beverage. With tea, I'm assuming that's not the case. Uh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It's another layer of nuance that tea has. Um, if you just let the 
tea plant grow, it can become quite a tall tree, as tall as, as um, any sizable maple uh, here in um, the northern part of the United States. But it's really humans that prune it down and, and um, cultivate these trees and prune them down to be bushes for human use. It creates a plucking table, it's called the plucking table. And there's certain teas that you need to harvest when they're the bud or like, you know, three, four, five, six leaves in a bud, right? And then everything that you do from when you pluck or harvest the leaf, because there's different ways to harvest the leaf, of course, um, to when it's dried, um, will make the tea type and the tea category, right? There's many other elements that make tea your place, the cultivar, uh, the seasonality, local traditions, your final aim. But really, it's a skill that's applied um, from harvesting to it being dried will make the tea and make it well. I would say instant coffee has got to be terrible. Instant coffee is kind of our shorthand for bad coffee. If there's like a Folgers and you just like take a scoop of it, you're not measuring anything, you're not weighing anything, you're just like, that's kind of the, the poster child for, I just need some caffeine in my system right now. However, more recently, I've tasted some companies that are making instant coffee on purpose. And it's not meant to be a caffeine vehicle to get it into your system as quickly and as uh, cheaply as possible, but that they are really paying attention to the quality of the ingredients that are going into it and creating more of an experience. However, that is like mostly the exception. Like I still think most instant coffees in the world are the stuff that wasn't good enough to be something else. So that's how I was looking at tea bags. It's like, this is the stuff that wasn't good enough to be sold as a full leaf somewhere else. I think one of the things that makes tea really accessible are tea bags. But for somebody, I, was, I wanted to ask you if, I guess your opinion on tea bags. I thought that if it was in a tea bag, it must be lower quality. It has to be lower quality to be either ground so fine or to be kind of restricted to that little the little space. And so I'm just wondering, is that a snobby thing to think? Or is there some legitimacy behind uh, thinking that tea bags are lower or inferior? Uh, well, I would say that just like with the coffee industry, tea um, and the specialty tea movement has really changed what ends up in people's tea bags. We grew up with um, the traditional tea bag fold and shape that as we know it, right? But the material of tea bags and the design of tea bags has changed so much so very recently. Um, and I think the design of um, tea bags today has kind of evolved out, what, out of what they used to be. So they're bigger to allow fuller leaves uh, in, to get into the bag, but then also have room to expand, right? If you put whole leaf teas in some of those very fine paper tea bags we all know and love, um, it wouldn't have any any room to unfurl, and that to and you'd have a very weak extraction. Um, and they also are clearer, so you, um, uh, have more transparency, literal transparency, and more accountability of what companies are saying are in the bag. Uh, just because it's fine doesn't mean that it's bad. I've had some really great finely made teas, and this is just part of. Um, you know, all industries, you can, you, in the process of making a really great tea, there might be um, more broken leaves or smaller pieces, and you grade from the size of the leaf, but it's all coming from a great batch of tea. So some of it's sold into the whole leaf market, 
and some are making their way into blends um, and maybe into tea bags. I'm not saying that this is a uh, um, this happens to all teas, but I'm saying it is out there and that's growing. But it's industry standard to have to sell whole leaves, right, and then to blend with teas of smaller size. So it, you have both conversations. Generally, quality is going up. Yes, I would say so. I'm happy happy to see that. We also have more offerings. You know, China really opened up later in the 20th century, and you can see worldwide more diversity um, of, of teas coming out of China. You can really, you can really see that happen. I mean, China is the only country in the world that grows all six categories of tea, and a lot of green tea is still held uh, and grown in East Asia. So, so it is possible to be a tea enthusiast, to really care about your quality, and to get good teas in tea bags. It's not the rule, but it's possible. It is possible in America today. Okay, so let's talk about this loose leaf culture. This is more where I live. Yeah. Um, I love, I love the toys. I love the brewers. I love the, like watching the leaves unfurl. So I generally don't look for tea bags unless I'm traveling. I bought like my own little bags, and then I'll take my loose leaf tea in those bags with me. Um, try not to buy those. But so talk to me about if we're gonna want to buy some teas, what should we be looking for? So to buy teas today, I think. Some best buying practices really would be to um, be an educated consumer and to find uh, companies with as much transparency as possible. Also, on the packaging and website, is it clear where they purchase their ingredients? Does it look like they care about sourcing clean products? Maybe they say that they test on import and maybe they um, can supply you the details of that. Um, do they have any certifications and why do they have those? And also, as I mentioned before, do they disclose all of their ingredients, including oils and flavors? They don't just say and spices or and natural flavors, which flavors, which spices. It's very important to know because for just general um, health consciousness and awareness, you want to know what you're consuming, right? But you also, more you study about plants, you want to learn about um, how they interact and how they may interact in your body as you consume them. And then I think the same is for coffee. You want to make sure that you have a best buy date on the packaging. And then also I would say, is there thoughtfulness in packaging design um, to where it's recyclable or reusable while keeping air out for freshness sake to maintain quality? It's a very tough balance and every company has a different answer for that. You know, I was going to say there was a tea shop here in Cleveland that I, I wanted to visit um, because it had a really huge selection. And I walked in and their shop was really beautiful. They had so many brewers and different ceramics and they had an entire wall of teas. And I was super excited. And I went up to the counter and I they let me smell them, which was really nice. They had them all in tins and they came out and they were letting me smell them. And then I asked them, oh, where is it from? And they had no idea. Like they could not tell me where any of these teas were from. And even though it looked beautiful, I just walked out. I was like, if you can't tell me, like, like literally could not tell me what country. There and, yeah, you know, it's a hard sell. I'm so surprised. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a definite error. We still have such a long way to go. Okay, so let's say we've bought some tea and <laughs> we've talked to somebody who does know where it's from and we know what ingredients 
if any else are in there and we have some good feelings about where, where they're sourcing um, and we bring it home. Now what's next? All right. Some tea tips that I have for you is always buy as fresh as you can consume what you buy um, and then go back and buy fresh again. And of course this is different for everybody, but I wouldn't stock up on 17 pounds of, of one tea and drink it over the next five years, unless it's a tea that's meant for aging. But generally speaking, <laughs> that's the tea will gen go bad. And how tea goes bad, if it's exposed to air, um, it will uh, dry out and you'll just lose the juiciness and the aroma, or it may absorb scent that it's around. So, you know, as you're sipping it, it's gonna taste like cinnamon or it's gonna taste like mint. So I would shop um, fresh. Basically life is too short to drink bad tea and good tea is too expensive to go to waste. And speaking a little more on how to store tea, you wanna keep it away from the elements. Just oxygen, heat, moisture, and other scents are the biggies. So don't put it in your windowsill, or even worse, don't put it in a tin on your window windowsill. You're literally cooking it. Uh, do not store it, store it in your spice cupboard. Uh, and if you can help it, don't store it next to your coffee. What's worse for a tea drinker, so taking a sip of your green tea and it tastes like coffee. Well, that's not a good morning. Yeah, I, I keep my, I keep mine separate, and I have all of my glassware that only ever touches coffee, and all of the other stuff that only ever touches tea. Like I have two separate, um, not correct, but like like my to go mugs, and I'm like I have one labeled as coffee and tea, and I'm like never the two shall meet because I cannot get that coffee flavor out of my tea. Bravo! Yeah. Coffee just leaves behind oils, and no matter what you use, it's going to taste like coffee. All right, let's talk about brewing. So how to brew and to get the most out of your leaf. Uh, this goes back to the hesitance I mentioned earlier. There's no one right way to make tea. I've heard people say that the British way of making tea is wrong. It's definitely not. It's one of numerous tea cultures around the world, which is correct in its own right. Really, the first lesson I gave numerous times um, is to know and work your variables, which I would say is the leaf, your water, your ratio, your temperature, and your time. So the first and foremost is really to understand what type of tea you have. Understanding the tea as we've discussed it and the category and the tea type will really help you um, brew um, a better cup. Lower oxidation teas, like starting with the greens, the yellows, and the whites, um, on average need lower temperature and time. And then as you go down the scale, you're increasing in temperature and time. The oxidation scale is really gonna kind of dictate a few of these variables, mainly chiefly temperature and time. Um, another thing with the leaf is you wanna recognize the size of the leaf of what we were talking about, or the grade, really. Um, this will also impact your brewing time and your ratio really all the variables. But smaller pieces equals more surface area, which means more extraction, which means less time needed for the same gram weight um, at larger sizes. And then going on to water quality, I think all baristas out there know how important water quality is. Um, and it's a challenge to know without having it tested for home brewers. Um, but I think more cafes and coffee shops will kind of know this, know what the waters they're working with. But in general, again, thinking about this oxidation scale, lower oxidized teas need softer water. And as you go along the scale, you need 
a little bit, little bit more harder water as you go. And then as far as ratio goes, this is really a personal preference. Um, your brewing vessel and all the other variables are going to impact this. Um, but really as a place to start, I would try four to five grams per 250 milliliters or a cup of water. For green teas, I would say brew for one to three minutes and for blacks up to five. And really just go from there, really play. If it's too weak, just add more. If it's too strong, take some away or shorten the brewing time or lower the temperature. Okay, so I guess going from here, I would encourage people to clearly just play and explore in the world of tea. It is as simple and as complex as you want it to be. And again, it can be a lifelong journey as it is for me and, and many enthusiasts and drinkers out there. I hope that you'll look at tea in a new way and are inspired to explore new categories. So to learn more about people and plants, check out her website, auroraprenn.com. That's A-U-R-O-R-A-P-R-E-H-N.com. And that address will also be in the show notes. Join me next time when we do part two of this conversation where we actually get to dig into the ethnobotany of tea. Deep thanks to Aurora for inspiring today's episode, and thank you to the other 50 individuals who support this podcast through Patreon. It's through their generosity that I can make it available to you all. These episodes are not sponsored or supported through any advertisements. It is completely listener-supported. If you would like to join this community of individuals who value coffee education, consider supporting this free podcast by visiting patreon.com slash coffee. As a bonus for Patreon supporters, Aurora has curated a list of tea recommendations to help get you started and taste the diversity. This list is a good place to start if you want to make sure that the tea company you are buying from has responsible sourcing, transparency, and is committed to education. Also, if you enjoy these episodes, please share with a friend, and if you want to be notified when the next one is coming out, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee. Or tea.